going to say my cool line again because I'll butcher it, but we do have Robert Kelly this morning, and um, I think Kurt shot a video from the farm. So let's see that. Good morning. I, I am, am videoing. Good morning. I am videoing to you today from Iowa, where uh, we are unexpectedly because uh, Julie's beloved Uncle Chuck, of whom God definitely broke the mold when he made him, he was such a character, and he's 83, and he's out there working like he was a teenager, and the tractor got into a bad spot, and it tipped on him, which does in fact happen out here quite a bit, and it was just unfortunate what happened, but it took him. And so we are here, um, and I just really appreciate your prayers. We'll be back next Sunday, but thank you, and. I just really appreciate your love, and so does Julie. So with that, uh, I get to do the introduction today. I really, really wanted to do this. I really, really wanted to be there because, frankly, you know, uh, no offense to Michael and Faith Kelly, who did such a spectacular job raising Robert Kelly, but I feel a little bit like he's my son, too. Uh, this is, and, and that's, by the way, that's because... I want to take to count him as my son because he's just such a spectacular human being. This is a guy who goes down to Biola and joins the what's called the Tory School, which is one of those places where you take really smart people and you just give them the best books in the world and then you let them read them and discuss. And even to this day, you know, Robert will read some incredible book about something and, and then he'll call me up and we'll talk about it and we'll go back and forth and over lunch or whatever. And it is just this is a remarkable young man, but it's not just that he's really smart. This kid has as much integrity as anybody I've ever met. And I say kid because I've known him since he was, you know, much younger. And just the way that he has grown has indeed, like I said, been spectacular. And again, I, I give great credit to Michael and Faith Kelly for the way that they rose, raised this young man. But I just have to tell you, I want to hear from him because I have watched him go through a walk with the Lord in as genuine and real and deep a way as anybody I've ever seen. He is just absolutely, he's got the utmost of integrity and he's also really good at analyzing what's going on in him and how that's with the Lord and so on. And I just, even when he was in college, I would call him and we would have these incredible conversations about how he was doing in his life and what God was doing and just the amazing insights and revelations that he got. So uh, I'm going to be watching. So turn around and wave at me because I'm not going to miss when Robert speaks, because this is somebody who I think is going to have a voice for a long time because he's doing life in such a spectacular way. So would you please just give a huge Lake Sam loving welcome to Robert Kelly, one of our own, who's come back up from L.A. and is just going to wow you today. Love you, Robert. Good morning. You guys can hear me okay? All right. Wow, that was a long intro. Okay. <laughs> I'm really glad to be here with all of you this morning. Um, like Kurt mentioned, I, I grew up in this church. Uh, when I first walked into these doors, I was about a foot shorter. I considered showing you some pictures of that and opted out of that. I also considered telling you a story from the first mission trip I went on with this church involving some Pedialyte. And then I decided, why would I want to expose myself to public embarrassment on purpose? But Justine Morris would be more than happy to tell you this story if you'd like to ask her. She's 
I can tell she's already very excited about it. This is a great church. Um, I learned to love reading the word here, being part of the body of believers here, being part of the capital C church. Um, and yeah, I'm just very thankful for, for so many people in this room. We've been on kind of a faith journey over the last few weeks, right? Last week we talked about Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, and we saw that the wealth that so easily entangled Zacchaeus, he was able to give up. He was able to, to give away everything that he'd stolen and follow Jesus with joy, be obedient to Jesus with joy. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, couldn't do it. Jesus says, go sell all that you have and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he doesn't have the strength or the, the willingness to obey. How do we be like Zacchaeus? How do we be obedient to what God wants from us and just be the way he would want us to be, do the things that he would want us to do, um, be right with him, instead of getting caught up like the rich young ruler did? I can tell you, I'm personally a lot more like the rich young ruler. I tend to be pretty stubborn. Uh, there, anyone who knows me is probably smiling right now because they know how true that is. Uh, my family knows that. My friends know that. My coworkers and my bosses know that. Uh, I regularly have disagreements with people at work about a, the way I, I think something should be done. And if I disagree with you about something, it's not going to be fun for you. If I don't understand why you're doing something, Lord have mercy on your soul. <laughs> that kind of questioning attitude, though, doesn't really help much when it comes to following Jesus, does it? If we want to be obedient to what he calls us to do, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and, and where he's leading us, we can't be questioning like that, can we? If God prompts you to do something, if he prompts you to apologize to somebody for being kind of terse with them the previous day, if he prompts you to go introduce yourself to somebody that you haven't met and try to make them feel welcome, if he prompts you to do something much bigger, uh, a much bigger step like moving to Ellensburg, or if he prompts you to not do something that seems logical and like a good step for you to do, something that would be a good step forward, and he says, uh, that's not the right thing. Can we be obedient? Can we do the things that he's asking us to do? And not only do them, but do them joyfully. Not, not sadly like the rich young ruler, but with excitement and joy because we know that it's God's will. And we're not differentiating our will from God's will and saying, here's the thing that I want, and here's the thing that God wants, and I have, to, I have to make a choice between them. They start to become the same thing, right? That, that song we were, we were singing, the new song, it's the Lord's Prayer, which is, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. When we pray that prayer, our will and God's will start to become the same thing. Today we're going to look at the lives of two different men. The first man was a wanderer, a sojourner in a foreign land, relatively unimportant guy in the grand scheme of things. The second man was a king, a man of power and influence with armies at his command, anointed to rule by God himself. These two men's stories are totally different, and yet very similar. God tests both of these men, and in their testing, we see a glimpse into what it is that God would ask of us, what he really wants from us. Now, you may have already guessed which two men I'm talking about, especially if you had any conversations with me about this before. Uh, it's very important that we not sort of replay the stories in our minds as we're going through these today. Hindsight is 2020. It's very easy to look at the stories of these two men and say, obviously what this man did was right, and obviously what this man did was wrong. In the moment, I don't think it was quite so clear or quite so easy. So, we're going to be looking at those two men today. We're going to see what God has for us about obedience and about 
faith in him. And I think that's going to make a big difference in our lives. So in the words of Kurt Brunk, that's where we're headed. And I'm really excited about this sermon. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think we've got actually Will Lee's praying for us. I didn't know that Will was already doing so many things today when I asked him to pray. So thank you, Will. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Father, we thank you that your word rings true above all else. And God, help us to accept your truth today. Lord, I, I'm thankful that you know, the word says that your word doesn't return void. It doesn't come back to you empty. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would fill us today. God, I pray for Robert that it would be your words coming out of his mouth, that it would be your voice speaking to us um, with all of his personality and unique insight to who you are. And Lord, I, I pray for um, our hearts just to be ready to receive you. And Lord, I feel like, like today I'm supposed to pray for um, kind of the church in general, but specifically all the people who they went to Mars Hill and have been since disbanded and don't know where their place is in the community. Lord, I just pray that we would be as a church at large, a strong community that's listening to your word and like we were talking about all morning, wanting to do your will and see your kingdom come so that we all fit in together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Will. So we're going to start looking at the first man, a man named Abraham. Abraham lived in the land of Ur. God calls him out of his homeland and says, you're going to go on a journey to this new land, the land of Canaan, which is going to be the land where I'm going to put my people, where I'm going to put my name. Abraham obeys, he goes and comes into the new land, and there God promises him that he's going to make him into a great nation, that he's going to have children as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Kind of a crazy promise, right? <laughs> Abraham believes God. He says, okay. He says, I believe that what you say is going to happen, which is also kind of a crazy response. When someone says something like that to you and to say, yeah, totally, I believe you, it's kind of a bold step in and of itself. In his faith, Abraham does that. And it says in the Bible that God credited his faith to him as righteousness. And we've been talking a lot about that idea over the last few weeks, how our faith in God, our trust in him, pleases him. Which makes sense when you think about it, right? Is there anything worse than telling someone whom you love with all your heart that you love them and having them not believe you? Or is there anything better than having someone tell you that they believe in you when no one else does? That's our faith in God. That's why it's pleasing to him. When, when God tells us something, we say, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think that's going to happen. I believe in you. So God makes that promise to Abraham. He has faith in it. And God makes it a little bit more specific later on. He says, you're going to have a son. And he and his wife, Sarah, don't have any children. Sarah is barren. She can't have children for some reason. And they hear this promise from God that you're going to have a son. And they say, okay, yeah, again, we believe you. And they're sitting there, and they're waiting, and a year goes by, two years go by, five years go by, ten years go by. Still no son. They're kind of looking at their watches thinking, okay, is, I mean, we believe this is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Maybe we need to take some sort of step for this to happen. And so Sarah comes up with a plan. And Sarah said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. This is what we do, right? When 
God's promise isn't happening, we start to think, uh, maybe I need to do something here to help make this come about. Now, there's a phrase in this passage that I want to highlight, and the reason I want to highlight it is that it's actually already come up in the Bible once. We're only 16 chapters in to the Bible, and this has already happened before. The phrase is, and Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. In Genesis 3, after the fall, God says something similar to Adam, after Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they've disobeyed God. We read in Genesis 3, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, let me just clear up any confusion right now and, and say, I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to the voice of your wife. I, I'm told by my married friends that that is a very important thing to do. I'm not saying don't listen to your wife. In both of these circumstances, both Adam and Abraham didn't listen to God. God told them something specifically, and they went against it. In the Bible, when, uh, when the word hear or, or listen is used, it doesn't just mean to hear the words. It means to obey. Jesus in the New Testament is always saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which seems like sort of a redundant thing to say, right? I mean, yes, I have ears. I'm standing right next to you. I'm going to hear the words that you're saying. But he's saying, no, do them. James says that if we hear the word and don't do it, we're deceiving ourselves. So in this circumstance, Adam doesn't do this. Abram doesn't do this. And Granted, Abraham is still, he's, he's got faith. He believes that God is going to come through as promise. He's just not quite understanding how that's going to come about. The result, oh, I'm sorry, one, more, one thing here. God can make his promises come true. And, um, you know, I'm sorry, I think we're, we might have missed a slide somewhere. Yeah, let, let, me, let me back up a little bit here. We're going to go off the PowerPoint for a second. So, Right after this happens, um, Hagar and Sarah, um, you know, they, they have this exchange and they decide, you know, we're going to do this other plan. And so a child is born. Ishmael is born. And God actually says to Abraham, I want you to send them away. I want you to send Hagar and Ishmael away. The, the son of the slave woman is not to inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, God is going to take care of Hagar and Ishmael. He does. He watches over them. They, they're not just left alone in the desert to die. But... Ishmael does not inherit with Isaac, the son of the promise. In the New Testament, we read about how um, we are children of the free woman. Paul talks in Galatians about how living under the law, where we're trying to muster up something, make something happen on our own, is not the way things are supposed to be. That's like living under the slave woman, where you try to make something happen on your own. But we live under the free woman. We are children of faith, of the promise of faith. And when God promises to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that's because we are children of faith. And so only God can make his promises come true. It's not something that we can do on our own. You can take all the steps that you want, all the actions that you want to make it happen. Unless God does it, it's not going to come about. Now, can I just tell you, I'm, I'm 25. Uh, I have a good job. I would like to get married at some point. I would like to have a family. Hasn't happened yet. At, at certain points in my life, I've put a lot of effort <laughs> into trying to make that happen. A lot of stress into making that happen. And hasn't worked out. Through that, God has been teaching me something. 
he's been teaching me that there are certain things that only he can do. And we tend to think, like, there, there are certain things in our lives that I can handle on my own, and there are certain things that I need God to step in for. Really, he's the source of all good things. We read in James, Do not be deceived by beloved brother. Good, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He doesn't change. Anything that comes from him is good because he is good. If, it, if it's not good, it's from the world. It's from sin. It's from death. But if it's a good thing, it comes from him. So what are we supposed to do in that moment when we're doubting, when we are not sure if God's going to come through on his promises? Well, I can tell you what Abraham did. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. When you're waiting for God to come through on his promises, when you're waiting for that friend who you really want to come to the Lord to get saved, when you're waiting for that family member who's sick to get better, give glory to God. Remember what he's done. Remember who he is. And, and acknowledge that, even publicly, even in front of your friends. Say, I, I don't know what's going on, but I know that God is good. And as we do that, he builds our faith in us. He starts to put it into us because we can't muster it up ourselves. After this, Isaac is born. The son of the promise finally does arrive. Way after Abram and Sarai's timeline, right? They're, they're both well past the age of having children when Isaac is finally born. It's a miracle that he comes about. And God's blessings come through Isaac, right? Jacob is born, the whole nation of Israel comes about, and through them, we become heirs of the promise of faith. And that's the end of the story, right? Well, not, so, not quite so much. We read in Genesis 22, after these things, after Isaac was born, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in his morning, and early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. What do you think was going through Abraham's mind as, as he received that command from God, as he took that three-day journey, as he took that solitary walk up the mountain with his son, his son holding the wood, which is supposed to burn his body? Maybe, how could God ask this of me? It doesn't make any sense, right? This is the son of the promise. This is the son who was born as a result of a miracle and through whom these promises are supposed to come. How could God ask this of me? 
I'm going to lose my son, my only son. There's a man named Soren Kierkegaard who wrote a book called Fear and Trembling, which is sort of a play on that verse in the New Testament where it says, work out your salvation in, with fear and trembling. And he essentially calls Abraham the greatest man who ever lived, which is kind of a, a high title, high praise. I mean, I'm pretty sure Jesus gets that title. But he has a point. It's an incredible thing for Abraham to be able to do this. It's an impossible thing for Abraham to be able to do this. He doesn't just have to give up his son. He has to be the one to raise the knife himself. That's what God is asking him to do. How could he do this? Not, not only that, but there's the uncertainty of it all. What if this is some sort of test from God? What if God is actually trying to get him to do, you know, quote unquote, the right thing and spare his son? God has never asked for human sacrifice before. Maybe he's testing Abraham to see, like, do you really know what my character is and that, that I'm a good God who wouldn't, who wouldn't do something like this? Maybe he's supposed to disobey God, and, and that's what passing the test looks like. How is he supposed to know what to do in this circumstance? And he's got three days to just sit there and think it over. And I imagine they weren't doing a whole lot of talking on this journey. I, I think he's just sitting there kind of mulling over, like, is this really going to happen? What am I supposed to do in this circumstance? Well, again, the New Testament kind of gives us some insight on what's going on here. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is a really interesting scripture for a couple of reasons. The first is that that quote right there, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, that's Genesis 21. We're in Genesis 22. This is a previous conversation that Abraham and God had. After Isaac was born, God says to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring is going to come. Not through one of your children, not through your seed, through Isaac specifically. And Isaac is a boy at this point, right? He's, I mean, he's obviously old enough to know, you know, we need, a, we need a lamb for the burnt offering. We didn't bring the lamb. But he doesn't have any kids yet. Isaac is still a boy. If this promise is going to come true, and Abraham believed by faith that when God told him this, that he was telling the truth, there are only two options. The first is that God is going to provide some sort of sacrifice in place of Isaac. He actually says that in the story, right? Isaac says, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself an offering, my son. I used to think that that was just Abraham trying to tell something to Isaac, you know, to get him to stop worrying, right? Because he knows he's going to have to sacrifice Isaac, and, and they don't have a lamb to sacrifice. So, you know, God's going to provide something, right? I think he actually believed it. I think that he actually believed that God was going to put something in the place of Isaac because he knew that through Isaac was going to come the children of the promise. The second option, which is also highlighted right here, is that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Maybe God would let him kill Isaac. Maybe Isaac would die. But on the other end of things, Isaac is going to live again. I don't think God at this point in time has raised anyone from the dead. We haven't seen that happen yet in the Bible. But Abraham has no doubts. He knows that God can do anything, and he knows that God can provide a sacrifice, and if not, he knows that God can raise Isaac from the dead. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Faith is assurance. It's conviction. It's knowledge. We know for sure. We know for certain that God is good and that he's, gonna, he's strong and that he's going to come through on his promises. Now, just to illustrate this really quick, I'm going to have Kirk Jackson and Jeff Richard come up for a second. Give them a hand. All right, so let's say just for the sake of our example here, uh, let's say that, uh, I don't know, let's say that Kirk doesn't know that the sky is blue. Maybe he lives under a rock or in the Pacific Northwest or something. <laughs> so Kirk doesn't know that the sky is blue, and he and I are having a conversation. He and I are friends. We've known each other for a while, and I say, Kirk, the sky is blue. Okay. And he, he says, okay, he agrees with me. So, Kirk, how do you know that the sky is blue? I just because I told him. Okay, that makes sense. How do you know that I'm telling you the truth? Well, I trust you, Robert. Okay, you trust me. That's, oh, that's nice. That's a nice feeling. Thanks, Kirk. Okay, now let's say that, you know, Kirk is going throughout his day, and, and he runs into Jeff, and Kirk and Jeff don't know each other. This is ironic, because they're going to become brothers-in-law before too long. Um, but, so they're meeting for the first time, and, you know, let's say that they're talking, and, you know, what else is it to talk with somebody that you don't, you don't know but about the weather? So they're talking about the weather, and Kirk says, yeah, I just, I just found out that the sky is blue. And, and Jeff says, actually, the sky is pink, which could also be true, right? I mean, at certain times of the day, the sky is one color, and at another time, it's another color. So, I mean, Kirk is sort of in a conundrum right here. You know, who do I believe? He hasn't seen the sky. He doesn't know, but it changes color. So, Kirk, what color would you say the sky is now? He still thinks it's blue. Why do you think it's blue? Well, I, I trust you more than this guy. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay. Jeff, are you okay? Does that feel all right? Are you all right there? Okay, he's okay. So you're willing to say that the sky is blue because of what you know about me. Yeah. You're willing to make a judgment about something that you've never seen before, that you've never experienced because of what you know about me, even if it directly contradicts something that someone else is telling you. Yeah. All right. That's sweet. Thanks, Kirk. Sure. Give these guys a hand. It's, it's a silly illustration, but the point is clear, right? There are times when we can't see what's going to happen. We can't see the end result. All we know is the person. All we know is God and his character and who he is, and that's all we have to go off of. We might even see something else that directly contradicts that. Someone might tell us something, or we might see something happen that is the absolute opposite of what the promise says. In the end, the promise will come true. Isaac may die, but he will live again. Our confidence in God is sure, and nothing should make us waver in that. The end result is that God says to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now I know that you fear God because you've obeyed my voice. That's what we're trying to get at, right? We're trying to get at obedience. And how do we do that? How do we do that even in an impossible situation? Now I know that you fear God. It's kind of an interesting phrase to use, right? It's not one that we talk about that much these days. Um, typically, we think of loving God 
as the most important thing, right? The thing we're supposed to go after. Love, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself are the two greatest commandments. I think love and fear actually are kind of intertwined. In the New Testament, John talks about certain Pharisees and religious teachers who actually believed in Jesus. They thought that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was the coming king. And they were afraid to confess it because they were afraid they were going to be put out of the synagogue. And right after that, it says, and they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They feared what they loved. They were, they were afraid to displease. They were afraid to be disrespected by the people whom they loved, by the things that they loved. Our fear of God doesn't make us love him less. It's part of seeing him rightly. Faith teaches us how to see God as he really is. God is not just loving. He's not just good. He is all of those things, but he is also strong. He is also holy. He is also unfathomable, unsearchable, so much higher than us. His understanding is so much greater. We are waiting eagerly for the day when Jesus is going to come back because we know him and we love him and we know that he desires good for us. But don't be mistaken. It's going to be a terrible day when he comes back. We read in Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is also Jesus. That is also our king. And sometimes it's more important that we fear him than, we, than that we just love him. We have to make choices out of fear sometimes as well. And if we fear God, we're free to obey him alone. Through our lives, we are, we're constantly making decisions and, and weighing choices based on what do we fear the most, right? When I get out of bed in the morning on a Monday, I have to decide, am I more afraid of having to talk to my manager about my project that I don't understand? Or am I more afraid of getting a negative review or getting fired? I'm more afraid of that, right? I'm, I don't want to have to do this, but I'm going to go do it anyway because my fear of this thing is greater. When our fear of God is greater than our fear of anything else, all of our decisions become a lot simpler, a lot clearer, especially when we believe that God is also one who always tells the truth. We don't have, Abraham didn't have to consider that God might be trying to trick him because God doesn't play tricks. When God tells you to do something, you do it, no matter what. We're going to move on now to the second man, a man named Saul. He was the king of Israel. Uh, he actually started out as kind of a nobody. He was a, a man of the tribe of Benjamin. He was tall. He was handsome. He was kind of self-conscious. We actually read about that in, in the stories in 1 Samuel. And God chooses to anoint Saul king. Israel asks for a king. They say, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king to go out in front of us and fight our battles. 
because we want to be like the other nations. We want to look like, like everyone else. We want to impress everybody, right? They feared other people more than they feared God. They feared offending others more than they feared offending God himself. So God says, okay, he's grieved by it, but he says, okay, I'll let you have what you want, and you can, you can see what the results of this are going to be. He tells them all the things that the king is going to do to them, all the negative things that are going to happen as a result. But he makes Saul king. Saul gets anointed by Samuel, who's the last judge of Israel, and he actually doesn't even tell his own family about it. He's probably thinking, it's, hoping it's going to blow over. Maybe this is a mistake. Maybe I'm actually not going to be the king. They bring everybody together. They cast lots to see who the king is going to be. Saul gets picked again. They bring him out, and he stands a head taller than anyone else in Israel, literally a full head taller. And everyone says, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to be our king. Perfect timing, because right after Saul gets anointed king, the Ammonites decide to attack Israel. Now, the Ammonites are not nice people. They decide that they want to attack a city of Israel for the sole purpose of bringing disgrace on Israel is the, the reason they say they want to do it. They say, we're going to go into the city and we're going to gouge out the right eyes of every person in this city just because we want to dishonor the people of Israel. Do you really want to make God angry? Do something just to dishonor him or the people where he has put his name. He's not a fan of that. God's spirit rushes on Saul. Saul takes a pair of oxen, cuts them up, sends them to all the portions of Israel and says, to the man who does not come out to fight, so shall it be done to his oxen. That does the trick. 330,000 men come to fight the Ammonites, and they win a crushing victory with God's help. One more battle comes up. The, the Philistines come to fight. The Philistines who have been a snare in the side of Israel since day one. God actually says one of the reasons he's going to let them have a king is to help destroy the Philistines because the Philistines have been hurting his people from the beginning. So the Philistines come to fight. They bring 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and infantry so numerous they cannot be counted. Now, obviously, Israel's got a big army too, right? They can muster 330,000 men. But Israel doesn't have real weapons. They're using farm tools and plowshares and whatever they can find. Israel at this point is not a rich, a rich nation. The Philistines are bringing chariots. Now, when you think of chariots, I want you to think of a tank. Armored horses... Uh, archers on the back of the chariot with composite bows that can shoot 300 yards, scythes hanging off the sides of the wheels of the chariot, spinning as the chariot goes by. The Philistines have 30,000 chariots. In the story of Exodus, when Israel's leaving Egypt and they go out through the Red Sea, God opens the water and the water comes down on the, on the Egyptian army and God saves them from the army, guess how many chariots the Egyptians had? A measly 600. They seemed pretty afraid of those chariots at the time. God had to, do, to work a miracle there. The Philistines had 30,000 chariots. There is no way they are going to win this battle. It is literally impossible. They are, going to, they are going to be destroyed by the Philistines. Before this battle, the, the Israelite armies mustered. They're waiting for the Philistines to come. And Samuel has told Saul, I want you to wait seven days. I'm going to come, I'm going to make sacrifices, and I'm going to tell you what to do next. Like, I'm specifically going to tell you what you're to do. You're supposed to wait until I come, and we'll pick up there. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, 
what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I, for I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. What are you supposed to do when the Philistines are riding towards you? What are you supposed to do when God says, sacrifice your only son? What do you do in that situation? They're impossible situations. It doesn't seem like Saul is being unreasonable here. He's saying, we need the favor of the Lord. I know that we need God on our side to win this battle. There's no way that we can do this on our own. Samuel hasn't gotten here. He said he was going to be here by now. We need to seek the favor of the Lord. I'm going to make the sacrifice. Seems like almost a faithful thing to do, right? To say, we need to seek God's favor right now. But here's the thing. Samuel told him specifically to wait. And in this story in the Old Testament, when Samuel tells you to do something, it's God telling you to do it. And if God tells you to wait, you wait. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Simple obedience is all that God asks of us. He's not asking us to, to weigh the options and decide which one is best. He's not asking us to, to consult everybody and figure out which way to go. He's asking us to obey. And the longer we wait, the longer we think about it and mull it over and decide which way is best, the harder it becomes. What's the area in your life where it's hard for you to obey, where you see and feel God prompting you to do something over and over and over, and you're just gritting your teeth. You're thinking, no, I'm not going to do, do that. That's silly. I don't need to do that. That's unnecessary. Or what's the area where God is telling you not to do something? And you're thinking, no, this seems like a, this is a good thing. This is a logical thing. It makes sense. I feel good about it. Everyone I've talked to feels good about it. It's going to be a good thing. God knows the ending, and he's not going to lie to you. He has never lied. It is not in his character. It is, it is impossible for God to lie. God can do all things, but he can't lie. He will never do that. One of my favorite books is called A Severe Mercy. Uh, it's a story of a man named Sheldon Van Aken and his wife, Davy. And I want you to think of the most perfect couple that you, you've ever met, like the most perfectly matched finishing each other's sentences to the, to the nth degree. That's this couple. They're not Christians, and they meet and fall in love and get married, and they decide that their love is going to be the most important thing in their lives. The, the, the absolute most important thing, they're going to make all their decisions based on how it's going to affect the love between them. They decide they're not going to have children because children would come in between them. They decide they don't want to be like the other couples who grow distant and grow apart. And they succeed. They call it the shining barrier. They say nothing is going to breach this barrier. And they succeed. They, they are the most perfect couple you've ever seen. Through a series of events, they end up moving to Oxford, England, and they meet C.S. Lewis, who is the author of a bunch of really fantastic books and stories that have proved to be really, really helpful for Christians. If you ever want to be encouraged, read some C.S. Lewis. They meet him, 
And through their conversations with him, they become Christians themselves. And they start going to church, and they start ministering to college students in their home there in Oxford. And the reason this book is called A Severe Mercy is actually very sad. It's a very sad story. I promise I'm not ruining the plot, because the point of the book is not the plot. It's the journey. But Davy, the wife in the story, actually becomes sick and dies at a relatively young age, about 35. And Sheldon writes the book, and he writes about how this was a severe mercy because God actually started to become a barrier between the two of them. She starts to love God more than she loves her husband. Not in a negative way. She actually becomes more able to love her husband as a result of loving God above all else. But for him, it was always Davy. She was always the first thing. She was always the one that he, he loved and wanted to please. And he actually starts to hate God because of the fact that she is letting God take his place in her life. It's a severe mercy because if God had not taken her, he realizes he would have lost his faith altogether. He would have grown to hate God and to hate his wife. It's a, it's a very sad story, but it's a good one if you ever get a chance to read it. And there's a story in that book that they tell the college students that they have in their home that I want to read to you right now. And if you guys wouldn't mind just kind of clicking through it as I read, that would be great. It's called The Fall. Gypsy, a furry, wheat-colored collie, found herself in possession of several hundred acres of hills and woods, full of good things like rabbit trails and streams and intriguing burrows, and she delighted in it all. She was given a comfortable bed and good meals. Perhaps she rather took it all for granted. Of obligations there were few, and they not heavy. She was, to be sure, supposed to worship her master and be right joyous to be with him. She knew she must not chase the chickens. While she must obey certain commands to follow, to come, to lie down, there were no unreasonable ones and no tricks. After all, to obey and to worship were natural to her dog nature. There came a day when, as Gypsy was prowling on the far hill past the spring house and pasture, two things happened at once. The master called her, and a rabbit fled across the hill. Gypsy wheeled and raced towards the master, as she had always done. Then she stopped. It entered into her mind that she didn't have to obey. Perhaps the master didn't understand about that rabbit. Anyhow, these were her hills. The rabbit was hers too. Very likely it was all lies, that story of everything, including herself belonging to the master. How did she know that the food in her dish came from him? Probably there was some natural explanation. She was a free dog, and that was the end of it. These thoughts went through her mind swiftly while she stood irresolute. Again came the master's command. The rabbit crossed the hilltop. Gypsy whirled and raced after the rabbit. She had made a choice. She was free to choose. Hours later, she came home. She saw the master waiting for her, but she did not rush gladly to him, leaping and frisking as she had always done. Something new came into her demeanor, guilt. She crept up to him like a snake on her belly. Undoubtedly, she was penitent at the moment, but she had a new knowledge, the knowledge of the possibility of sin, and it was a thrill in her heart and a salt taste in her mouth. Nevertheless, she was very obedient the next day and the day after. Eventually, though, there was another rabbit, and she did not even hesitate. Soon it was the mere possibility of a rabbit, and then she dropped the rabbit thing altogether and went her way. The master loved her still, but trusted her no longer. In time, she lived in a pen and went for walks with a rope around her neck. All her real freedom was gone. But the master gave her from time to time new chances to obey of her own free will. Had she chosen to obey, she would once again have had perfect freedom to wander her hundreds of acres. 
but she did not return to the obedience. She always chose, if she were out of reach, to run away. The master, knowing hunger would bring her back to her pen, let her run. He could have stopped her. The rifle that would have ended her rebellion with the crack of doom stood in the corner. But while she lived, she might still return to the obedience, might still choose the obedience that was freedom. One day, during a journey by car, Gypsy and her good little daughter, Flurry, were taken into the edge of a wood. Always, Gypsy had limited her disobedience to her own hills. But now, coming back to the car, she suddenly felt the old thrill. She turned and fled. The master called with a note of sharp urgency. Flurry, with the courtesy that always ruled her, came at once. Gypsy, her ears dulled to the meanings of the master, continued her rush into the dark forest. After hours of search and calling, the master sadly abandoned the lost one and with Flurry beside him, went home. There, Flurry continued to live in freedom under the obedience. She was right joyous to be with the master and happy when she did a thing that pleased him. She knew that in his service was perfect freedom. She obeyed gladly of her own free choice. How do we not be gypsy? How do we be flurry? How do we enjoy the freedom of obedience? How do we enjoy the joy of obedience? Just being happy to be with the master and to do a thing that pleases him, have that be the utmost thing in our hearts and our minds, the thing that drives everything that we do. Maybe today you're feeling like you just don't have it in you to be able to obey. Maybe you're just in a cycle of disobedience time and time and time again. And I don't just mean with things that we normally think of as sin. I mean just obeying the promptings of the Spirit, feeling like you're, you're living in the life of the Spirit. If that's you, God wants to give you a gift today. Maybe you're feeling today like you don't have any faith anymore, like you're not able to see God for who he is, you're not able to see him as good or as loving, or as strong, or as holy, or as someone to be feared. If that's you, God wants to give you a gift today. That gift is faith. Faith doesn't come from us. It's not something that we muster up on our own. It's not something that we feel when all of a sudden everything's good because we sang the right songs and now we're set. It's a gift of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's something that he wants to give you. And only God can make his promises come true, remember? Only he can do it. It doesn't come from us. He wants to do that for you today. He wants to set you free from whatever it is that's holding you back from being able to obey so that you can be free. And the freedom of obedience, the joy of obedience. Lord, we just ask that you would just come and be with us today, Lord, that you would shine your light in our hearts, that you would show us the way and that we would obey, that you would give us the ability to obey, to break cycles of disobedience, to break fear of anything that's not you, to break joy that doesn't come from you, Lord. We want our joy to be in you alone. We want you to be the source of the good things in our lives you with whom there is no shadow of turning. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you that you don't try to trick us, that you don't try to lie to us, that you're always truthful, that we can trust you in whatever it is that you're doing, wherever you're taking us. Even if we can't see the ending, even if Isaac dies, we know 
that he will live again because of what you promised, Lord. We may not get to see the promises come to fruition. Abraham didn't get to see his descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, but he believed that they were coming. And Lord, we know that when you come back, you will set all things right. So we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would just move in our hearts, Lord, again, that you would bring us to a place of simple obedience, of single-heartedness, Lord, because blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Thank you, Lord. Reach in. Yeah. Reach in front of you in the chair. You're going to find two cups. So we take the first cup, the bread, and we stick our finger in it and break it. We say, God, thank you just for the ultimate act of obedience, God. <clears throat> knowing what was ahead, God. Knowing what was to come. God, you went to the cross for us. And so we say thank you. Thank you for the example, God. We love you. And we take the cup, God, the blood that you shed for us. God, give us freedom. God, take to make us who we are today, God. God, may this message, may these thoughts be an example, God, for us. Jesus, take it. I know we already did, and he hates us, but can we just thank Robert one more time?